Welcome, everybody. This is Spirituality Adventures. Thanks for joining in. We are starting a new topic, and we are on health and spirituality. So we'll be visiting different kinds of health, physical health, mental health, spiritual health, those kinds of things, and thinking about spirituality through that lens. And today we are excited to have Dr. Michelle Kylo with us. And we met over a year ago through a common friend, and I've been so thankful to get to know her, and And she's been very much aware of my journey, my meltdown, and everything that I've gone through, but I, I've also been able to get to know her and her journey and the work that she's been doing with children for decades now. Uh-huh. And so thank you, Michelle, for joining us today. My pleasure. I would love to have you share just a little bit with our audience about your background, your education, and kind of your career path up to point. Like, give us just a brief summary of of your past and help people get to know you a little bit. Okay. My brief summary. Yeah. Not the one-hour version. But, <laughs> right. right. Um, well, I grew up in St. Louis, uh, Saint, South St. Louis County. Um, in a large uh, Lebanese Arabic family, um, uh, my both of my parents were American born, but my four grandparents were uh, immigrants from Lebanon and Syria, um, and a very loud, um, energetic, food filled family, um, which was wonderful. I um, was a hardworking student. Um, I've, pro- got to, I've got to interject. I was. I, I've been to both Lebanon and Syria. Yes. And I do love the food. Anyway, I'll let, uh, yes. you, you keep going. The but food I just- <laughs> is fabulous. And my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, was the second oldest of eight children and the only girl. And so she was a master, master um, Middle Eastern cook. And so all of her recipes have been handed down, not to me, since I don't cook, but to my husband and to my mom and my brothers and... So, um, so we, we all have that legacy. Yes, awesome. I'll, we'll have to cook for you sometime, right. Fred. Yeah. <laughs> um, or Blake will. Um, so um, I was... Probably uh, average, high average brain kid, and just worked really, really hard. Um, I knew in high school that I wanted to do something in the healthcare field and thought I wanted to be a physician um, and applied for the six year medical program at UMKC my senior year of high school. I'm very unsure if I would be accepted because some of the smartest um, guys in my high school class, um, the the geeks um, in my high school class also applied, but I did get accepted and they didn't. (laughs) So I must've had something that they, that they didn't, um, maybe a little personality um, (laughs) or loudness. Um, So I started in 1978, the six-year medical program at UMKC, where you start right out of high school, and it's six years year-round. Loved, absolutely loved it. Hmm. It was the perfect, um, perfect 
match for me as far as college experience and um, medical school combined um, because you started right away in clinical experience and that relationship um, building with patients um, was what I loved. It's really what fed me. Um, Interestingly, as a high school student, when I had been accepted um, to the School of Medicine and knew that I would be attending there, my high school teachers um, were all like, oh, Michelle, you know, what are you going to do? Are you going to be a pediatrician? And I just rebelled against that. I thought, you know, no, I'm not going to be a pediatrician. I mean, just because I'm a female, do you think that I have to be a pediatrician because women love children? Um, I'm going to be a surgeon. I'm going to be a plastic surgeon. And I went in (laughs) thinking that that's what I was going to do. Um, realized as we continued through um, not only studies but clinical rotations that I loved the rotations when I was with kids. Hmm. Um, It was just uh, incredibly hopeful. And so many people, I think, will say, you know, gosh, how can you stand that? How can you stand working with sick kids? Um, Doesn't it get you down? Doesn't it make you depressed? But the kids don't let you get depressed, regardless of what they have, of what disease they have. They are the ones that bring hope and laughter. And um, and gives me chills. Yeah, it was just, it was really, it was an amazing experience to learn Hmm. from them. Um, As I was um, entering my final year of medical school, um, 19... 83, going into 1984 and getting ready to apply for residencies um, and doing all the travel. Um, I've shared this story with you before. Um, In July the 3rd of 1983, my youngest brother, who was 16 at the time, was killed in a boating accident and um, devastating for our family. Mm -hmm. Um, He was the youngest of the four of us and... um, I wasn't sure I was going to be able to finish that last year. Hmm. Um, We were just absolutely devastated. Um, My father had been standing there on the dock of our family lake house on 4th of July weekend and actually watched my brother Rich um, be hit by the propeller of a boat and die in front of him. And Hmm. that was um, life-altering obviously, for me and for all of us. Um, But as I was making this decision about what I was going to do, that further solidified for me that I needed to be that um, connection between sick children um, or children with a condition um, and families hmm. that I so understood the pieces of that hmm. journey that it was the right thing for me. And I wanted to use it as a positive experience. Not to say that that final year um, from July of 1983 through June of 1984 when I graduated was an easy year. Um, Probably first time in my life ever that I could say I knew what depression was. Mm -hmm. Um, But 
powered through it, um, you know, was worried about my parents and my family as well, but got through it, had been accepted for residency at Children's Mercy. Um, and I had a little detour before starting my residency at the time that Richie was killed. Um, I had been applying for a, uh, MAP Reader's Digest fellowship, um, and, um, ended up being accepted for that and went to Africa for four months, um, left, believe it or not, Zambia, Central Africa. Um, I left one year to the day of Rich's death, so July the 3rd of 1984. I had graduated uh, in June of 1984. Left for Zambia, Africa, for four months, um, working with a group of Irish Catholic nuns and Jesuit priests who were also health, all healthcare professionals, mm-hmm. um, running several missions um, in Zambia, and... Um, that as well was a turning point. It was just such an incredibly healing experience. Interesting. Um, yeah. The perfect bridge, really, from finishing medical school, graduating from med school, and um, and starting residency, mm-hmm. where you are still learning and training, of course, in a specialty mm-hmm. area, but much more on your own, you mm-hmm. know, than you were during medical school. Um, was there something about the the spiritual component of that experience in Africa that that shaped you? Oh, yes. Um, I mean, I grew up Catholic um, and loved the Catholic religion as a, a, as a kid. Um, it was very much a part of our family life, our family um, traditions. Um, didn't love everything about the Catholic Church mm-hmm. or the history of the Catholic sure. Church. You know, some might say that these days they call it a cafeteria Catholic, I think, where you pick and choose the pieces yes. that you really love. But I don't care. Um, to me, that was, you know, was my my religion, my mm-hmm. choice, my faith. Um, and, you know, I have to say that it was probably the first first major faith crisis when, after Rich's death when I thought, yeah. okay, how how's this possible? You know, how do yes. you get through this? How right. do you ask parents to endure this? Um, and um, that, and I really struggled with that the whole year. Uh, yeah, stopped going it. to mass and you know, was doing all kinds of reading, you know, when bad things happen to good people and, you know, all of that, um, trying to figure it out, you know. Um, and, so much healing took place during those four months in Africa. I mean, hmm. I was there alone, you know, a, a, a 22-year-old girl in Africa for four months with no one that I knew, um, you know, nuns and and um, and Jesuit priests from all over Ireland, from England, um, and, um, you know, medical students there training, and Zambian nurses and physicians and patients. And it was absolutely the perfect hmm. experience for me in healing that spiritual part of me. Right, beautiful. Um, yes. So, hmm. um, and I have stayed in very close touch with 
most of the people that I lived with when I oh. was oh, that's when I was in Africa. In yeah. fact, have been um, to Ireland twice to live with the girls that I lived with there, um, who are now, of course, all married and, and with children themselves, have stayed very close in touch with several of the nuns that I worked with who are also amazing nurses and physicians who taught me so much. Um, so it was absolutely the experience that brought me back to life, seeing the need that was there and the love and devotion that these nuns put into running this hospital on a thread. I mean, you know, um, and the 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 beautiful smiles in these children's faces the lives that they lived with nothing i mean the joy that you saw from using a, a papaya you know to play soccer with out on the fields um you know the simplicity of their lives mm. and there was one little guy uh, in particular that was in for months in the hospital in Zambia for tuberculosis treatment that I um, checked on every day and, and got to be close with. And he loved my Adidas tennis shoes mm-hmm. and shorts. And I couldn't wear shorts out in the open. I had to put a chitange, the wrap around, you know, because you're not, the women are mm-hmm. not supposed to show their thighs. And um, so when I was leaving there, um, I gave him my Adidas shorts and tennis shoes, oh. um, my, as he said, my Adidas. <laughs> um, and so I, I think about him often. Um, and he was out in the bush, but he lived in the bush, but was living at the hospital for the completion of his treatment. Wow. Um, so anyway, this is the hour version of my journey. So tell right. me when you want to move right. on. <laughs> well, I, I just find it interesting, you know, Obviously, thinking of Jesus's healing ministry, you you're in the healing arts, and you're over there having your own like emotional spiritual healing. Oh, absolutely! At the same time, you're you're ministering healing through your profession right. and the love of people and that whole love God, love your neighbor dynamic is so. Uh, so powerful, I think. It was, That's good. it was very powerful, Fred. And I mean, really has shaped me. Mm. Um, I mean, you know, I've, I, I look back on life and I think, okay, you know, these, these things happened at such an incredible time and the timing of them between, you know, not vowing that I wasn't going to be a pediatrician and then falling in love with pediatrics and mm-hmm. being in the presence of of children and watching the you know you talk about spiritual i mean the relationship between children and their parents that you saw um th- there's nothing that that the parents would not do for their children mm-hmm. regardless of whether it was a illness or a developmental disability or whatever mm-hmm. i mean all of those things were profound yeah. experiences S- still are for yes, me. That's awesome. Yes. Thank you for sharing that. So give people a little idea of what you've been doing the last, you know, 
30 years, I guess, in, in terms of working with children, the kind of children you've been working with and focused on. So I um, completed my three-year general pediatrics resident residency at Children's Mercy um, when I returned from Africa. And during that time, I and when you're doing general pediatrics, you do rotations in every pediatric subspecialty. Um, and that was when I fell in love with the field, relatively new field at that time, of um, pediatric neurodevelopmental disabilities. And um, I, I think it was because as I was traveling through residency and getting the experience of the ICU and acute care and, you know, what really fit me. Um, and I was learning all the way, but I just knew for me, I had to be involved in something that would provide long-term relationships. That's what floated my boat. Okay. That's what I loved. Really getting to know people. The importance of seeing kids in the emergency room. You know, you can't, I mean, of course. Um, I mean, everybody wants to have a fabulous ER doctor there who is, you know, quality physician um, when your kid is the one that's in the emergency. But for me, I needed that long-term mm-hmm. relationship. So I fell in love with this field, new field at the time of neurodevelopmental disabilities. And um, the person who was my mentor at the time um, had just come. She was the first physician at Children's Mercy that had been hired to do that field. And she and I wrote curriculum for me to do a three-year fellowship in pediatric neurodevelopmental disabilities. So I started that in January of 1988, and it was a three-year program. Um, And during that time, of course, learned the gamut of uh, developmental behavioral disorders that happen in children from chromosomal anomalies, um, intellectual disabilities, what we then called mental retardation for various reasons, cerebral palsy, which is more motor disability, um, learning disabilities, ADHD, which are the more subtle but still very impactful disabilities, um, autism, which wasn't as known then in the 80s as, of course, it is now. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, all of those really embedded in my training and my clinical experience as well. Um, In 1991, as I was finishing um, my fellowship, um, that the mentor that I had been working with during my fellowship left, Children's Mercy, and I was asked to take over as the division chief. Um, right out of my fellowship. Um, I was a little anxious about that because Mm -hmm. I was still so new and young to the field, but felt like it was an honor to be asked by the chief of pediatrics, who was very dear to me, like a dad to me. Um, So I did. I took took that on and served in that role from April of 1991 until the spring of 2018. Um, And... um, during that time was both, so that was 27 Mm -hmm. years, um, was both a clinician, continued to see patients um, from very young 
children, babies, looking at developmental disabilities, what was their diagnosis, at what level were they functioning, what could we do, what were the um, interventions that we needed to put into place to help them and their parents maximize their potential um, during that 27-year period of time. Um, I grew the division tremendously. This is during the time when many of these um, developmental disabilities in children were first were finally being recognized, um, as well as autism just growing and expanding in its prevalence across the world. Um, so we grew tremendously with people trained like me, developmental pediatricians, where I was the first ever trained at Children's Mercy. We grew to ten in the division okay. by the time I left. Um, child and adolescent psychiatry was a, um, were colleagues that we were very closely trained with, although they focused more on the mental health disorders, but mm -hmm. there's such overlap in mm -hmm. these conditions, and um, psychologists. And so we had seven child and adolescent psychiatrists and 50 plus psychologists addressing wow. the needs of all of these populations. Yeah. It was a huge division. Yeah. And So um, I'm curious, because you've mentioned at-risk kids as well, which if I understood you right, and I'm maybe just give this in in layman term because that's mm -hmm. the only way I understand mm -hmm. it. But is is there a difference between at some point did you start working with even a even a, another subset of that developmentally challenged group, which you'd call at risk kids, or help me out with the language um, and the terminology around that? So yes, in some ways, because I was at Children's Mercy. Um, um, all of these kids in many ways were at risk, mm -hmm. depending on the origin of their families, the financial situation of their families. We would diagnose kids with uh, severe autism who were in a uh, single mom family where, you know, we had no idea that that if mom had the resources or the wherewithal to be able to get the children the significant help that they needed. Mm -hmm. And so that's one kind of at risk. Okay. Um, so there's a, to, maybe there's a, a, a very limited amount of resources that that particular parent might have to work with absolutely. the challenges their kid is facing. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. So that's a type of at risk. That's a type of at risk, mm -hmm. of course. And those are kids that we wanted to follow because we wanted to be sure that mom was accessing the resources that she needed, whether mm -hmm. it was her doing it or oftentimes the grandparents stepping mm -hmm. in to do it or the school system um, that they were in. Okay. Um, but again, challenges in all of those areas. Mm -hmm. I mean, sometimes there were grandparents who were raising or watching other of their grandchildren or school districts that didn't have the resources themselves. Mm -hmm. um, in probably the late 2010, so maybe 2008, 9, 10, right in there, we, Children's Mercy, formed a relationship with Operation Breakthrough, uh, the child care and school that is uh, on Troost, like 32nd and Troost, okay. right in that area. Um, and that's a different type of at-risk 
population. And so... What is it? So Describe it. their at-risk is um, growing up in, um, being born in, um, oftentimes being born drug-exposed, um, uh, being raised in single mom homes with no father there, um, mothers who continue to use substances um, throughout their day to survive, mothers who are prostituting to survive um, and put food on their kids' tables, um, mothers who do not have work, um, and not having the structure around them. Um, And what happens with all those situations is that those women continue to get pregnant. And um, so... The work of Operation Breakthrough, a beautiful place supporting those families, was to do everything they could to turn those family situations around. And so this is when, where trauma comes in. So, you know, there's uh, all of this new research over the past 10 or so years mm-hmm. on trauma in everybody's life right. um, and the ACEs scores, you know, mm. the adverse childhood effects and how it affects children's learning and growth and thriving and mm-hmm. health right. in adulthood as well. Explain, because I, I I interviewed a few weeks ago uh, uh, Dr. George Haymack and Dr. Kathleen Keenan, which you're friends with as well. Yes. And we, did, we spent a little bit of time talking about trauma with Kathleen. And I asked her to describe the difference between big T trauma and some psychologists talk about small t trauma uh but this the score that you're referring to is a trauma score yes right right just just give it give us a little couple of minutes from your perspective on that so the aces score was created by two physicians um who were working together um, to look at how do you quantify the trauma that any individual has experienced in their life. And it goes through a series of questions. You can look it up. You know, mm-hmm. you just pull up ACEs, um, you know, and it will give you the um, survey to look at where you fall in that. Um, and it asks questions about um, parental mental health, exposure early on to substance, a parent with substance abuse or uh, any uh, you know, adult in your life with substance abuse, domestic violence, um, yelling, screaming kinds of things in your home. And so it looks at, um, you know, it, it's based on stress and they use the term toxic stress. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we all have stress. And in some ways, stress can be a positive. I mean, it helps you to grow resilience. And Mm -hmm. um, But when the stress is a constant in your life, when you aren't ever sure as a developing child, when your brain is supposed to be learning and growing and, you know, learning to read and playing outside and all the positive things. Instead, you're worried about who's going to come into your home next and are you going to be sexually abused? Are you going to be hit? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, are you going to have food on the table? Um, all of those day-to-day life events. Um and so, you know, I think I'm not sure what Kathleen yeah. was talking about with the little T versus the big T. Right. But well, even like, um, so 
think about like an idealized healthy support system for a kid. Right. You might give us like some key points there and that would, I'm assuming that type of child would score well on this scale of uh, healthy versus traumatic. But then if you think about the warning signs and you've just named a couple of them that would would give a person a really danger signal that this kid is in severe danger. They've experienced a lot of trauma. What's the healthiest view look like? And what's the, in the scale of this thing, then what, what does it look like to be on the worst side of that scale? And then all of us are probably in between the absolute ideal and the worst, right? I mean, the two extremes. Sure. Because this is life, right? And life is complex. Even, Even healthy kids growing up in healthy families. Like I've, with my um, addiction therapy that I've been doing, you know, I've discovered I've had some small T trauma. Sure. Which I would have never actually even classified as trauma. I would have never thought of it that way. I just thought it, it's just a kid growing up in a normal life. I got bullied. Yeah, everybody did. You know, I mean, yes, things absolutely. like that. Right. And I mean, you know, no one's life is perfect. Right. Um, how would we even define right. perfect, you know? Right. Um, but there's some healthy factors that go into sure a, a well-rounded kid. Yes, I think you know studies have shown that um, resilience is built in children by having one adult in their life that is a constant loving, caring adult. Just one. Just one. Isn't that amazing to think and of? It is. And it shows you, know, you how powerful one is. <laughs> power the power of one. one. Yeah. I mean, and you know, obviously that has to be a consistent presence mm-hmm. in that child's life. Someone they know they can count on mm. that is there for them, that shows them love, that that helps them see the best in themselves, that isn't knocking them down emotionally and Mm -hmm. telling them, you know, what a shit they are. And, um, you know, (laughs) I mean, knocking them down both emotionally and physically. I mean, you know, um, so that I think is the start of resilience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for all of us, we can look back and see those times where, you know, we were left out of a friend group or, you know, those are the little T traumas that emotionally mm-hmm. kind of got to you at the time. There are some people that believe that trauma begins in utero, um, that even in utero, the the neurologic, the neurochemical um, milieu of the mother's body and the stress, the cortisol that is kind of, you know, circulating mm-hmm. through the mother's body and through the placenta can start an at-risk baby. Some type of stress cycle that's going on chemically. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we see that. I mean, I, right now, so, you know, I've shared with you, um, you know, after um, I my 34 years at Children's Mercy and 27 years of leading the division um, and growing many, many programs that I am very proud of, including this collaboration with Operation Breakthrough, where we had psychologists that were uh, trauma experts and really working with those populations of kids to support them and to support the teachers that were there, um, as well as our Missouri uh, autism center that we developed. Um, 
when I left Children's Mercy, I have now partnered with Foster Adopt Connect, a nonprofit in Kansas and Missouri. And the specific work of Foster Adopt Connect is to support children and families in the foster system and to connect foster children with adoptive lifelong families. Mm-hmm. Um, they're forever families right. is what they call them. Okay. And, um, and boy, you talk about immersion in the effects of trauma. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, you know, even that prenatal exposure. Mm-hmm. Now, remember, it's so complicated because there is genetics and the biology that we're all born with mm-hmm. um, and, you know, predisposed to all of the um, diseases that come in our family line, um, as well as who it is that, who it is, <laughs> keep hitting the microphone, um, who it is that the, the you know, the the connection is between father mother. And so those two sets of genetics come together. Um, and in many of these families, it's two families with significant history of substance abuse and mental illness. Mm-hmm. And even in those children, when babies are born um, and immediately taken into foster care because of the history. Yes. And immediately adopted the issues, the behavioral issues, the mental health issues that develop in those children, mm-hmm. it is amazing. I mean, you look mm-hmm. at these families, these parents, the amazing parents that so I am now working with. Great nurture. Fabulous nurture. But the nature everything. component is... The nature mm-hmm. is so strong. Right. You can't get rid of it. Mm-hmm. Um and so, you know, that's where it's so important to have ongoing supports for these kids yeah. and families. You can't yeah. just say, whew, okay, well, we got them out of that environment. Mm-hmm. They're home free. No, um, you know, they're not home free. Um, I mean, they're, it's a constant road a ahead. Lifelong process. Lifelong process, mm-hmm. yes. So... I'm inter- so a lot of people that are listening right now, there'll be there'll be a lot of moms out there that are listening that are raising their kids during COVID right now, and I'm kind of kind of like zooming out a little bit here. Just but I'm just thinking about some of the mothers that are listening. Every mother probably worries about how healthy their kid is emotionally, relationally. Now going through COVID, there's a lot of gosh, how you know how's this going to affect my kid and all that kind of stuff. I, I'm I'm curious with with your experience having worked with uh, this huge range of kids and, and developmentally challenged kids, at risk kids. Um, what would you want to say to mothers out there that are, are concerned about their own kids, the resources that are available during this COVID time, the stresses that are there? How can they how can they provide the best resources possible for their own environment? As, as hard as it is, because parents are also feeling stressed and overwhelmed with the situation and um, everything that everyone is dealing with right now, the number one thing is for kids to have that 
positive environment at home, to feel the security of their parents' love and presence, or the adult in their lives' love and presence. Simple statements. We're going to be okay. Everything is fine. Mom and dad are dealing with this, or, you know, grandma's dealing with this. Um, It's our job as parents to take care of you and to make sure that you grow up to be a healthy adult. Your job is not to worry. Your job is to continue learning, to play, and, you know, to be, to grow up to be the kid, the, the adult that we know you can be. We love you. We are here for you. It's, it's a, and of course, that is, it sounds so simple mm-hmm. and it's not simple. You know, you have parents struggling that are working from home, that are trying to get their jobs done. And they're also now they've become the teacher, right. especially in these at-risk situations. Mm. Very different for people who can afford to be working from home and have a nanny who's, you know, doing or hire somebody to mm-hmm. be there to help their younger kids or for people who have older high school kids or college kids who are, you know, doing that on their own. But for these families, especially with these at-risk situations, um, to have all of that going on, the stress is enormous. What about people who have lost their jobs? Um, you know, and they, they're so concerned about where food is going to come from. Will they be able to get a job again once COVID is over? All of those stressors. But if... If those caregivers can just take the time, take that deep breath and really think about what is my message to the children that I am responsible for, the children mm-hmm. that I'm caring to, for, mm-hmm. um, it's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, we're all going to be okay. We're going to get through this. We're doing everything we can to protect you. And this is our job as adults. This is your job as children. Excellent. Well, and and I know we have single moms that are listening, tuning in right now. And, you know, they're hearing this. And obviously they, they're, you know, I'm, I'm sure they're going, gosh, I, I have limited resources. I'm a single mom. I don't have... You know, there's there's these doubts I think that mothers carry in their hearts about how they're doing with their own kids, and and there can even be shame attached Absolutely. to uh, a mom's thoughts about how well she's doing. This, you know, Brene Brown talks about this shame thing for for women is never good enough. It's really for all of us never good enough. But in, for a mother, that can be really deep. Like I, I'm. I'm just a single mom and I have these limited resources and I'm trying to do my best, but they can carry a lot of, a lot of shame about that. Yes. How do you, how do you speak to one of those moms and encourage them? Well, you know, in my clinical practice, um, what I always do is point out, you know, look at your beautiful kids, look at how well, you have them dressed. They are so, you know, clean and their clothes are adorable. And look how polite they are. Um, you know, really pointing out the good work that they have done. You know, these are really, really smart kids. I mean, one of the things we know is that 
it is amazing how intelligence seems to be preserved, even when there is emotional um, and behavioral disturbance. Intelligence is often Isn't preserved. That interesting? It's just fascinating. Some brilliant kids, right? Brilliant kids, yeah. and I say to them all the time, "Look at how smart." Your kids are. Mm-hmm. I mean, what potential they have. You are doing a great job. You're doing the very best you can do. Mm-hmm. Be proud of that. Yes. And, you know, I say that not just to single moms with little resources, right. but, you know, I can tell you myself as a long term working mom who often worked 12, 14 hour days for years, day upon day upon day, coming home and thinking, holy cow, I'm doing more for other people's kids than I'm doing for my own. Mm. But those little things that you do, it's those comments of, you know, it's not quantity. It really is quality. And I was very lucky that I had a husband who was home more and was a you know fabulous dad to give all that reinforcement. Um, but I think that for all of us, we question mm-hmm. and we have that shame and that negative loop that mm-hmm. goes in our head. And doing, I, I just do my best to turn that around and say, look at the positive that you're doing. Yeah. Look at what you're giving to these kids. This is the best start that they could ask for. Excellent. Yeah, that's so good. We all work better from affirmation, don't we, than... Absolutely. And from the negative. Yes. Um, so I'm curious. So maybe some people are listening and and they really are feeling at their limits right now, um, overtaxed. They feel like maybe they're going to, like, I don't know, I can hold this together. I'm, I'm hearing what you're saying, but maybe some people are on that on that side of the, the resource scale where they need some outside help to get through this COVID time. Uh, and it, it could be a long-term thing for them that they haven't even thought about or tapped into that, like, I'm going to need long-term resource help. What what kind of help is out there in our community? I'm, I'm assuming there's resources that people probably don't even know about sometimes. At the same time, uh, I'm, I'm guessing a lot of those resources during this time are tapped out. Oh, they're so tapped so out, over, Fred. I mean... Even under normal times mm-hmm. um, in you know in this country, social services are tapped out mm-hmm. because of the significant increase in mental behavioral health disorders across our country in children and adults. Um, and that's a whole other topic that you know yeah. we don't even have time right. for today. Right. But this has you know COVID. Um, and this pandemic and the isolation that comes with it has just added to that. Um, and so, um, you know, but I would say there are community mental health centers that um, anyone can reach out to and they are geographic. You know, there is, um, you know, in Independence, in Johnson County, in the Northland, there are community mental health centers that are there to help. There are crisis lines 
that are there in a situation where, um, you know, if a parent is feeling completely overwhelmed and needs that help. The other thing that we... Is, is that a phone number that they can... It is, I'm and I don't know it What's off it? the top of Say my head. Say the name one but, more time. Well, there are community mental health centers, and I think, you know, anybody who has access to a phone or mm-hmm. the internet... Just Google it. Google community mental health okay. centers, and they will all pop up, and it, you know, tells you where the... Okay. Ca- what the catchment area is, but we can't um, emphasize too much the personal connections during this time. Despite that we can't be close together physically, that we're not supposed to be hugging, um, still calling on the phone. Or, you know, talking to a neighbor from porch to porch or Zooming, if you have access to that, with other moms. That connection is so important. Reaching out to your kids' teachers. They know the resources. They would be able to help. I was just on a call yesterday with uh, several um, mothers and community resource providers in the Kansas City, Missouri school district as we were looking at the resources available for kids with um, IEPs and developmental disabilities um, throughout this COVID experience. And every- What's the IEP? um, Individualized educational plan. Okay. The IEP that any child that has a, a a a clinical diagnosis of developmental delay is um, eligible for a specific plan okay. to meet their needs mm-hmm. um, in the school system. And, um, you know, uh, the, the one things that the moms on this call said had been life-saving to them through this period of time was their relationship with other moms and with their kids Teachers, okay, reaching out to those teachers to say, "Hey, this is what we're experiencing. This is what we need help with." Um, and if the teachers couldn't get it, you know, many schools now have social workers mm-hmm. and have counselors' offices, and you know, so there there are any number of ways to get that help. I think it's just reaching out and asking for it right. and utilizing the positive relationships um, in, in people's lives. And this this may be where social media can help a little bit in terms of networking people yes. without physical presence. Absolutely. Um, yes. That can be a positive if you Very, have a smartphone yes. or something, download some of these things and your school probably has a Facebook page or a Absolutely. And there are all kinds of resources right now for people that are experiencing these exact Mm -hmm. things. You know, Mm -hmm. are you overwhelmed? Are you anxious? Are you feeling depressed? You know, call this number. Um, And the other thing that we would be remiss if we didn't mention is churches. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, reaching out to churches and pastors and, you know, letting people know, um, I'm I'm not doing well. I mean, I'm I'm feeling, um, you know, overwhelmed. I'm in a crisis right now. Um, and uh, and asking for help from those spiritual leaders. Yes, um, I think this is a time where people who are in service to others, whether it is healthcare professionals, whether it is um, you know church leaders, uh, social service, welfare people, 
are open to doing everything they right. can to help. Right. Yep. We team, have to do that. We have team to, and community yes, approach. Yes, absolutely. 100%. Absolutely. Yes. All hands on deck. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah, hands so and that, hearts on deck. Right. So, I mean, that, that I, I wanted to take a, a bit of time to ask, like, so there's some people out there that, uh, might feel, I mean, everybody feels stressed probably to some degree, but some are thinking, you know, I have some free time I could give, I, I could volunteer, I could help in some of these situations with, uh, with at-risk kids or something like that. What, what are some ways that people, if they were interested, could volunteer? How, how can they help be a part of that community support system through volunteering? What are some of your... What are some of your favorites that you would like to see people and how can they get connected and that kind of thing? Um, I mean, I am on multiple boards um, <laughs> of children's, you know, uh, children's um, advocacy groups right now or not-for-profits in the community mm-hmm. that support and serve children with developmental disabilities or, um, you know, uh various organizations like that. The hard part right now is that we can't be together in person. And so volunteering has really taken on a different shape through COVID. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, I wish that people were able to go and come together at harvesters or a food pantry and feel like they were really giving back, you know, doing food drives, doing clothing drives, those kinds of things. Um, You still can. Mm -hmm. I think you anybody can right. you know start and one of the things i've heard you probably have too through all of covid is people were people have said my gosh i've never had so much time in my own house i've cleaned out all the food that we haven't used i've cleaned out my closet my closet is you know finally you know organized and um so i think there are lots of organizations where you can go and drop off um you know food items um clothing items mm-hmm. there's a turning point mm-hmm. um up here in the northland um, just off of I-29 in Wacomus, that is um, a, a food and clothing pantry for um, you know the underserved and refugees in mm-hmm. the Northland. Yes. Um, and um, there is the the organization that I'm now partnering with, Foster Adopt Connect, who has a clothing pantry and um, they have a big food truck um, that unfortunately was just stolen. You might have oh, seen no. that on the news. The truck was from the warehouse, but you know they have a food pantry where they drive to deliver food and they've got a campaign right now called Give Joy for the holidays where you can go online and adopt a foster child or a family of foster children, um, you know, get the details of that mm-hmm. those children, buy gifts for them and deliver them to foster adopt and they will then be delivered to those families. Um, you know, I think that there's always harvesters um, and I'm not right. sure what harvesters is doing right now with... People wearing masks and staying socially distanced. Yeah, but. their volunteers are doing that. But I mean, since COVID started, the increase in the the distribution centers for harvesters or churches, as well as other yes. communities, and 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 so, but they're going at it big time. Yes. So there are ways to volunteer through that. This foster, what's the name of the group? Foster, foster adopt adopt connect. And, and they do they have? Was this the one you were telling me about that has? Uh, a program coming up here in the near future 
through the holidays or just... It's the Give Joy campaign okay. um, through Foster Adopt Connect, and they're the ones who have, and you know, they, uh, Executive Director Lori Ross has in sending an email out to, you know, all of their donors and um, and the people that they're connected with has mm-hmm. said, this is one of our biggest years of need ever. Okay. Um, and so there's oh. a link um, on the Foster Adopt Connect website for the Give Joy campaign where children foster children in the foster system can be adopted and you know given gifts and clothing etc for okay. for the holidays yes right. and that that campaign is in full swing I'm curious uh, one of the groups that you're you're on the board with is the uh, Center for Conflict Resolution Correct and um, from what I gathered that was an interesting approach to restorative justice in our urban core yes. schools, yes. trying to pinpoint uh, really big conflict things that can boil up and turn into, I mean, unfortunately, can turn into even murder situations, right? Oh, absolutely. Right? Yes. But, but to to intervene into these situations, and I'm, I'm thinking conflict, I'm thinking with COVID, you know, the increase in addiction statistics and domestic violence and all these things that 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 organization's got to be <laughs> going on full speed as well. They are, and they continue to work in the schools, um, doing a tremendous number of virtual trainings to get teachers on board with conflict resolution, with restorative justice practices, mm-hmm. um, and learning those restorative um, methods of resolving conflict coming together, um, you know, kind of circle processing, um, neighborhood accountability boards where if there are disputes between neighbors and more of that is happening because people are irritable and they're at home all mm-hmm. the time. Um, so, you know, the staff at uh, Center for Conflict Resolution is just um, going, you know, gangbusters with the work that they're doing to really help the community um, look at um, this this situation that we're all in, this pandemic, um, as an opportunity to come together in a non-conflict, a non-violent way. Yes. Excellent. Excellent. Well, this has been fascinating. Um, I so admire your work with children, and it's just, it's inspiring for me to hear all the work that you have done, uh, the kinds of things that you advocate for and the, and the way that you have, have served our community so beautifully over the last uh, several decades. So I thank really you. appreciate you doing that. And, and I, I thank you for sitting down and just sharing uh, with, with us some of your work and what you're doing. Maybe you could give us some closing thoughts, speak to our audience out there in this time of COVID and, and particularly with an emphasis on children. Um, just give them some words of hope. Like I think you've done that very well already, but maybe just to give some closing thoughts here for our audience. You know, this is just such an incredibly challenging time for our entire world. And um, one of the things that I have tried to do is to use um, mindfulness in a more consistent way. And so, you know, the practice of um, 
really focusing on this present moment and what can I do in this moment, taking that deep breath. And I have worked with several of my patients and families, have sent them links to guided meditations for children as well. Oh, cool. And what are can you can you name one of those real quickly? Well, there's I'm just there's curious. all kinds of mind. I mean, you just have for to, children for children. Yeah. Yes, there are links for mindful you just meditation. Google mindful meditation for children. You'll, yes, you'll find it. Okay. Yes. Oh, um, yes. There's mindful moment. There's insight timer. Okay. You know, there's several apps that have um, that have mindful mindfulness meditations. Right. Um, but there's also lots of things that are really geared specific to introducing mindfulness to children and programs across this country that are focusing on inner city schools and using the practice of mindfulness, mm. which, you know, the research is showing that meditation and mindfulness and, and bringing yourself into that present moment and pushing mm-hmm. out the negative and really focusing on yeah. the um, you know emotional well-being right really mm-hmm. changes That's, um, I'm brain cur- chemistry I'm, I'm I'm so I'm fascinated with this uh, first of all you know I was just experiencing it for myself but then I would love to find somebody here in Kansas City that I could interview for this segment on spirituality and health that that's really good at mindful meditation. Do you have any recommendations? I do indeed. <laughs> we'll, we'll say it publicly, and we'll, no, I don't. I don't want to put pressure on her or him or her. But yeah, I uh, do indeed. I'll, I'll I'll share some okay. some of those names Very with good. you. Thank you. Yes. Yep. But you know, I think um, it, it in any way possible is through the stress and anxiety is taking that step back and trying to refocus on the positive. Mm-hmm. What do we have? What are our blessings? And this is the perfect time, right? Thanksgiving Excellent. is next week. And one of my favorite no. holidays um, of the year because it only involves being grateful and food. Of course, that's right. wonderful too. Exactly. But you know, no gifts. It's not about gift buying. It's not about the craziness of, of you know, commercialism and 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 consumption and being out there. It's about being grateful for what we have. Mm. And so this is a really good time to say to parents, take that step back and really talk with your kids about not what we don't have, but what do we have. Mm. That's excellent. Yeah, I was I was I was reading, you know, this this brain that we have like negative things stick to it like velcro. I heard somebody say, but then positive seems to slip off like Teflon. Yes. Like the old Teflon analogy. And so you actually have to take time, at least twenty seconds just to focus on something great that you're grateful about and positive about for it actually to Sink in and affect your your whole well being. Right, absolutely. So that's a practice, and over and over again. Exactly, Fred. Not just yeah. oh, I'll try this one time. Right. It's like anything. Daily. It's like exercise. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like the biking that you and I do. Mm-hmm. Um, it'd be great to say you're going to go out and you know do a couple miles one time, and you're set for right. life. You know, <laughs> I mean, anything that we do that is good for us mm-hmm. has to be a practice, practice yeah. kind of focusing on the future, not 
the immediate gain, mm-hmm. but the future. Uh, that's what I've said to my own family about Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not getting together in St. Louis as a big family, as we so often have. My little five-some or six-some is staying here in Kansas City, and we have to do that right now mm-hmm. because it's what's good for today, mm-hmm. um, but also good for the future, for right. the health of all of us. So really, um, I think focusing in that way is important for Excellent. all of us. As hard as it is, right. we got to do that self-talk it um, is. to get us into that mindset. Excellent. Very important. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And Very welcome. Thanks thank to you. everybody who's tuned in, and we appreciate it. Continue to follow us here at Spirituality Adventures, and we'll see you next time. Hi, Media Production.